But the true nature of science is that particularly when you're in an evolving situation, you've got to be flexible enough and humble enough to say, you know, two months or three months down the line, we're starting to see a different set of data and a different set of facts that we may want to modify a bit the kinds of decisions and recommendations that we make. The president has revealed to us his method for getting rid of the pandemic. There is no need for testing, except to test our ability to simply wish it away. If we don't do something significant, we will not only be delinquent in our duties to fight this virus, but we will also be increasing the damage to our economy. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. What is far more toxic and lethal and uncontained than a mere dumpster fire. Dumpsters are at least containers, and the fire, while noxious, burns through garbage till the whole gigantic vat is just an ashtray. I miss simple dumpster fires. What we have now is more like Chernobyl, like a sprawl of poison polluting the groundwater for years to come and never fully burning out. Trump has cost a generation of kids their orderly educations and even their shot at feeling safe in the world. And a generation of senior citizens have seen their lives or their friends' lives unnecessarily cut short. Coronavirus fatalities passed those of the Vietnam War months ago, and it has now killed more Americans than Vietnam, the Gulf War, the Afghanistan War, and the Iraq War combined. And so much of this destruction was both predictable and preventable. Trump wasn't removed after his illegitimate win by Hamilton electors. He wasn't removed under the 21st Amendment. He wasn't indicted after the Mueller report or removed after the impeachment with so many good reasons to do so. And so we have a commander-in-chief whose unfitness has been obvious from the beginning, leading the nation into unprecedented devastation because he's too stupid, crazy, and evil to have done anything about it. Today's guest to talk about the Trump administration's hopelessly botched and malicious response to the coronavirus is Catherine Eben. She's a contributing editor for Vanity Fair and the author of Bottle of Lies about the generic drug boom. Her most recent story for Vanity Fair is how Jared Kushner's secret testing plan went poof into thin air. If you haven't seen this, you must, because it tells of something people call democide, which we will now hear about from Catherine. Catherine, welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you. Great to be here. So there's nothing more diverting in an already anxiety-producing summer than thinking about the machinations of one Jared Kushner. And this piece just blew up because you got at not just the incompetence, but finally put your finger on the malice involved in the coordination and the non-coordination of the COVID-19 response overseen, especially by Jared Kushner. How did you do this? You got a lot of documents other people didn't have. Will you just walk us through this, this incredible farrago, this kind of thriller about Jared Kushner and about, about these masks and about this failed effort to uh, try to do something good for the country for a change? So this story began sort of slowly and incrementally. I got this invoice. The invoice was very strange. It was an order for 3.5 million diagnostic tests 
that was ordered from what looked like a sort of shady outfit in Abu Dhabi called Cogna Technology Solutions. And one of the striking things was that Cogna spelled its own name incorrectly on the invoice. So it's one of those import-export kind of places that you might see in Midtown that doesn't yeah. really exist. Yeah. And technology spelled without that H. It's just such an incredible detail in the beginning of the piece. So you get this invoice. Yeah. And then I drilled down onto this invoice. It turns out that Cogna is a subsidiary of a company called Group 42, which looks like it has links, uh, close links to the ruling family in the United Arab Emirates. It's an artificial intelligence company that was actually involved in the development of a really shady app, which was sort of spying on everybody. This is like a whole different story, but that was Group 42. So I was like, huh. Then it turned out the test kits were Chinese made uh, by a company called BGI Genomics. And I was like, I spent just weeks reporting on the invoice alone. But the most curious thing about the invoice was the client name listed on the invoice, which simply said WH, which stood for White House. Yes, and no spelling error for a change. Right. (laughs) I was able to track through a lot of, you know, kind of shoe leather, virtual shoe leather reporting. Mm -hmm. I was able to track that these test kits had been delivered to the embassy of the United Arab Emirates in Washington, D.C., that they were tested uh, in a government lab, and they were determined to be contaminated and unusable. Not only that, they couldn't even be paid for because there was no proper procurement of them. There was no legitimate contract. There was no legitimate uh, contracting officer. And this essentially led me to this I mean, it's been referred to as a shadow operation Mm -hmm. that Jared Kushner was running out of the White House, which has had no transparency around it. So I know you, I mean, these are are not the kind of uh, sources you want in any way to blow, but how does a person just come across an invoice like this, which is one of the closest things to a smoking gun we've had <laughs> in, uh, in, in, in this whole dreadful four-year story of the Trump fiasco? What, what, how does it happen? I mean, I just like, maybe you can just tell us vaguely how it might happen. Well, um, I will say this, which is, This invoice, I guess, had been making the rounds through a variety of federal agencies because of the problems associated with it, that Cogna Technology was looking for payment for $52 million. The folks at the embassy at the United Arab Emirates were bothering the various health agencies for reimbursement. And then they were like, well, you know, we can't pay because there's no contract. Um, so, you know, this invoice had sort of been bumping along uh, for a couple of months. And that is really where, you know, the reporting for this story began. And I just remember, you know, I had the invoice on my desk for a long time, uh, just staring at it and trying to figure out well, what does it all mean? Also, this idea that the tests were contaminated just like sent shudders through me. Were these tests like the now the the kind of six inch swabs that we think of as a COVID test? And if contaminated, ugh, please don't tell me what that's like. 
<laughs> but were they, did they look like the tests now? Because we had so much trouble in March even conceiving that we might have any kind of testing program. And we were told many times that the tests were... They were, tests were wrong or they were bad or something. Was this was this an effort to get at the tests we have now? Or was it something totally different? Well, you know, when I do these stories, one of the things that I focus on a lot is the timeline. I always make a timeline for all these stories. And what sort of interested me about the purchase of these test kits is that it was the purchase was made about three weeks after Trump had gone to the CDC and said, the tests are beautiful. The tests are here. Every, anybody who wants a test can get a test. That was completely false. So it looked to me like this secret purchase was a way to put some truth into that claim, hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If they could log 3.5 million tests and disseminate them, then maybe there would be a little bit of truth to the statement that anybody who wants a test can get a test because mm -hmm. at the moment that Trump said that it was completely untrue. So, you know, there seemed to be that kind of a motive behind it just from the timeline. But these are, you know, RT-PCR tests. So these are like the na nasal swab tests. And basically it's the tests and those come with test kits. So the test kits are how you actually test the sample, right? Because then you have to put the sample into a test kit, which has reagents in it. And then you see whether it's positive or negative. So mm -hmm. it was the kits that were contaminated. And so they weren't giving accurate results. Do you get the sense that this is how Sopranos is this? Did this Abu Dhabi-based organization send us a bunch of bum kits, like sending baking soda instead of cocaine? Or was it they just hurried to get them to get and were expecting to get their millions for it? Or was this a good faith effort where what's sketchy about it is just that Jared did it through a back channel? Well, you know the old saying, never assume conspiracy when incompetence is an option. Yeah, okay, good. And, you know, I think there is some of that. But the problem clearly is when you do something through a back channel, mm -hmm. and this is a casual, just all friends here effort in order to give Trump a talking point at the podium that there's a lot of tests, mm. and it doesn't go through proper procurement. Then, then you do get into a situation where there's no way to verify quality. That's part of the issue here. So where did Kushner move from here? I mean, he's already done, violated the ways that appropriations are supposed to work in this country, but he's done that so, they've done that so many times. And he's also always kind of getting in bed with one Middle Eastern leader or another for deals, for money, to, for bailouts, for to cover up torture in the case of, uh, of uh, Mohammed bin Salman. So n neither of those two details are surprising. It is, of course, surprising that he's taken the lives of Americans suffering into his hands. But tell me what happened after the tests were shown to be unusable. First, let me just say that this appeared to be part of Kushner's effort to, quote unquote, solve the diagnostic testing crisis. You know, widely acknowledged, it, it was a crisis. You know, the CDC fumbled those first tests. Uh, the U.S. was completely behind the eight ball. There were all, all these restrictions placed around testing so that if you didn't have symptoms, you couldn't get tested. If you hadn't been exposed, 
you know, to a Chinese national from the Wuhan seafood market, you couldn't get a test, which is mm-hmm. obviously no way to run a pandemic response. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, then I, I found out, well, it's, it was reported previously, he surrounded himself with this brain trust that included, you know, his former college roommate, a variety of Morgan Stanley bankers, um, and they were operating out of the White House. Mm-hmm. And they were consulting with various billionaires who had no experience in the diagnostic testing industry. Mm-hmm. But, you know, lucky for America, they decided to consult a couple of true experts from the diagnostic testing industry. I mean, what a, what a whimsical idea. <laughs> And and so I began to be able to reconstruct what happened behind closed doors in that group. This part is what I want to hear about. This is the room where it happens stuff, ladies and gentlemen. Um, okay. So they're working on encrypted platform WhatsApp around the clock, night and day, hammering out what is a sort of essential, uh, no-brainer national testing plan. Mm-hmm. Every single country in the world that has managed to flatten their curve has a plan that resembles the one that they set up. Mm-hmm. And the idea is you use the the reach and might of the federal government to eliminate roadblocks, surge up testing, kind of free up lab capacity, you know, the way Germany has done it. Yeah. It's not like any lab just sends the sample where they want. It's a system where you could, it's a dashboard system where you can see who has capacity, right? Mm. And mm-hmm. it's directed in, at a federal level. So mm-hmm. that was essentially the plan that they cobbled together. And, you know, through what was pretty arduous, time-intensive reporting, I was able to get a draft copy of the plan that they hammered out. Yeah, it's sort of connecting the dots among the labs. And I think you right. say at some point they're like ter- making a UPS for a whole industry. I mean, right. It's really about, it's, it's really, it's really very non-digital, right? It's like moving things in space. You know, we're back to figuring out what, what it is, is it to mail something? So t- yeah, tell me what that draft said and said to you. Yeah, I mean, the draft basically said, we've got a diagnostic testing crisis. We need the federal government to step in. We need a system to allocate supplies, to allocate lab capacity, to surveil symptoms. And that because the fall is going to be such a perilous time, you know, with school reopenings and the the onset of the flu season, we need to be able to stand up a syndromic surveillance system from the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is not rocket science. I mean, syndromic surveillance is the name of the game when it comes to these kinds of outbreaks. Mm. Of course, you know, it's like somebody gave me the analogy of wartime. Um, we're being invaded. You know, where yeah. are we being invaded? Where are where are these outbreaks happening? Unless mm. you can figure that out in real time, how are you going to reopen? Right? right. The only way that you can respond to something like that is is either the the you know outbreaks are going to just rage unchecked or you're going to completely shut down your economy or you're going to have a system in place to know where the outbreaks are mm-hmm. which is what this plan proposed 
This reminds me a little bit. We had, um, after Andy Kroll's piece in Rolling Stone came out about, the piece is called Absolute Clusterfuck, about the task force. And Jared's a big part of it. There's a small detail that, you know, reminds me that sometimes the first few phone calls and moves here, because, uh, you know, a Kushner will reach out to some sane people who granted our bankers or people he knows from Harvard or whatever they are, masters of the universe, but they don't want blood on their hands. And so they reach out to reasonable other people. And sometimes they can pull together, you know, an app that can let you find a testing place, or in this case, an okay plan. Um, it, right. you know, so it's sort of incompetence, but not with just a sheen of posh, you know, figures from Morgan Stanley, but also like some of them are relatively good natured and sane and know what they're doing. And so, yes, you end up with this plan. So what? So so, yeah, the surprises are that there are these moments of hope with the task force, <laughs> you know, where you might think, well, go. Yes, go with that. Go with the idea of consulting an expert. Nope. Back down from that. So so what does Jared do next? I think it's, you know. Apropos of that, it's worth adding that the participant in the plan that we interviewed said this was done with the interests of Americans in mind. It seemed apolitical. The work was sincere and real. And then that participant was led to believe that the plan was going to be announced. It was Mm -hmm. going to be announced in the Rose Garden. And that is when that participant said the plan just went poof into thin air. It vanished. And the plan that was announced in its stead basically abdicated all federal responsibility. It kicked the whole problem of testing to the states. The states Mm -hmm. were on their own. The federal government committed to working to improve the supply chain. But as far as standing up testing sites, Finding lab capacity, that was all up to the states. So there was really nothing left, nothing left to the plan. I heard my son, who's 14, and some friends talking the other day about sort of their anxieties around going back to school. And one of them was saying that, you know, just seeing the schools, the governor, the mayor, we're in New York, New York City, seeing the the schools, the governor, the mayor, the president, various members of his team act so erratically, you know, should you should you use Purell? Should you wear a mask? No, yes, no, yes, we're going to go back to school, we're not going back to school, has just been um, created this incredible cognitive dissonance and lack of trust in any kind of authority. And I feel like that started and, you know, while we're cataloging the trauma of this time, I think the moment that Trump said, you know, first said, I'm going to be a wartime president and, and seemed to be rolling out a plan to, you know, uh, put unemployment and stimulus package in place. And suddenly this very fat, you know, we'd just been talking about when we have Bernie Sanders as a president. Now, all of a sudden, we had this super centralized approach to the coronavirus. We we're going to bond together. We we're going to have a president, you know, at the head of this who, whether out of narcissism or uh, will to power, was at least going to jump in and do this. What was, to, what was he going to lose? And then that moment, that it went to the states and he was suddenly fighting with the governors of California and New York was such a, it just felt like this kind of psychic crisis, you know, that really, what are you, like, you're going to be fighting with each other on political battles and calling names on Twitter and that's how we're going to handle this, you know, while our grandparents are dying. That moment that you're describing where the plan went poof, is the moment that I feel like it was a, it became an existential crisis. 
Uh, it absolutely, you know, the the White House um, has made it clear that it is not going to take responsibility for any of this. And Trump came out and said it himself. I don't take any responsibility at all, he said. You know, so in everything that they have done, um, they have gone about uh, responding in a political fashion. So perhaps it is not surprising that a plan that was cobbled together relatively unencumbered by political considerations mm-hmm. uh, became instantly political when it came time for the White House to stand it up. I mean, it, it's so odd because once Trump said wartime president, I thought, well, this will be his route to re-election because he has the model of South Korea and increasingly uh, Europe. He doesn't have to invent anything out of whole cloth. We're not the first country to get this. And if he can just mobilize the resources of the United States of America, which still have GM plants to make the ventilators and, you know, a working uh, post office system, um, not to mention FedEx and UPS, he can just get this done. And I thought that it was like the political moment for him was that moment that Cuomo seized, you know, to just like exert his will to power to save American lives. It didn't seem like it. you needed to be especially benevolent. You just, you needed yeah. to have your eye on re-election. And yet they, they seem to have, and this is where I think in your story, at least, incompetence tilts into something like malice or, or at least callousness, that they, they decided that a better political move for them would be to let the blue states and cities wither. Right. So, you know, so the question, so the plan goes poof into thin air. So one question that sort of dominated my reporting, once I had a copy of the invoice and a copy of the plan, then the question was, why did the plan go poof into thin air? What happened to this plan? From the best that I was able to reconstruct, the plan runs headlong into shifting sentiment within the White House, right? Mm -hmm. So it's April. There was this notion, partly being promulgated by Deborah Burks, Mm -hmm. and this has been reported now by the New York Times, that through her modeling, she was coming to the conclusion that the virus was on its way out, Mm -hmm. that this peak had subsided, Mm -hmm. and, you know, somehow that this was all going to stay, weirdly, in the blue states, Right. I mean, this, this is was, about this is by early April. She was saying yes. this. Right. So like yes. New York was ramping up to its apex. And she said, right. So if we just wait it out, it will uh, will the will call the herd. Right. We'll call the blue states out of the herd. I mean, the, the idea was, you know, we're going to be like Italy. You're going to see this sharp peak and then a fall off. But what that gave them, then there was a political calculation, which according to one expert that we interviewed, was actually told this by a member of uh, Kushner's team, that the logic was, this is within the blue states, and a national plan would not therefore have political resonance. And if need be, we can blame the Democratic governors And essentially, we don't have to stand up this national plan, which is going to be a whole lot of work and time and effort. You know, they didn't necessarily want to do the work. This is this elegant part in your piece that makes the stomach drop because it took a while 
I had to reread this paragraph over and over again, where your your source, this expert who says a member of Kushner's team says the virus had hit the blue states hardest. A national plan was unnecessary and would not make sense politically. I mean, you know, it it takes it takes the uh, the extremists on Twitter to start calling that some version of genocide or like what Saddam Hussein did to the Kurds. Um, but it's, you know, you just are laying this out in this like recessive kind of cold way that holy shit, they're going to like, they're going to, they say it doesn't make political sense to us to have Americans, even though he's the president of all America, even there are, there are Trump voters in every blue state, but, and even though, you know, a pluribus unum that on first principles, just letting people die is uh, letting Americans die is, is, is unconscionable because it hits the blue states hardest, we don't need to do anything about it. Let it rip through those blue states and then blame the governors. And that would be not just uh, conservative policy and cheaper. It would be an effective political strategy. It would right. be better than wiping out coronavirus from the federal level. It would be better because it would make Cuomo and Newsom look incompetent. I mean, it's just... And by the way, it hasn't paid off, but it is just jaw dropping. Actually, I have a question for you. When you heard what this Kushner team member allegedly said from this expert who has no, you have no reason to doubt. Did you, how did you process what you were hearing? You know, I find that when I report these stories, I'm not particularly emotional about it. It didn't even, I thought, oh, well, maybe there's an explanation for why the plan went poof into thin air. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I, uh, the first thing I heard that this article was like an absolutely jaw-dropping, infuriating read was a report from the copy editor at Vanity Fair. Huh. My editor said, yeah, the story made her really mad. I was like, I wonder why. <laughs> wow. Right. Because you'd been so deep in it and yeah. you work in timelines. Yeah. You just wanted the story of one thing after another, right? You're, you're not, you're not heading toward max outrage and, or you're not no. gearing up to do the Rachel Maddow show. No, not at all. You know, and in fact, I sort of felt like, you know, as part of the reporting process and, and I had been sort of at the story for months, I was like, you know, wrestling with it. We have these component parts. We have this invoice. We have the testing plan and, you know, I have the Rockefeller Foundation's efforts and, you know, we should talk about what the Rockefeller Foundation yes. is. And so from a storytelling and information point of view, how does this all fit together, um, which was a sort of tricky thing to square. But the response to the piece, uh, which has been massive, took me by surprise, to be honest. You also give the backstage view of what you call the summer of disaster and has certainly, for those of us on the consumer end, <laughs> been experienced as a summer of disaster. When these kind of crazy news that the mayor of Phoenix, say, asked for help and then is told, uh, you're beneath our help, you don't have enough case. Right. Um, and, um, and then because I saw most of this, you, when we were just huddled inside during, during the apex, um, I just like clung to the Cuomo press conferences, daily press conferences. And you could just see, you know, 
he needed ventilators and he was being told to fuck off by the president of the United States. And he was impressed that other governors had found their way to get them from Korea. Um, and he was negotiating with other states and promising them that he would pay it forward if the time ever came that they needed his help. You know, you come to me on the day of your daughter's wedding um, and um, on my daughter's wedding and I will help you. And now he is returning the favor uh, in Savannah and Atlanta. But just watching those negotiations happen and they happened in cities and states all over the country. Country, and tr- and Trump showing favor that he might save lives in your state if you sufficiently kiss the ring. That was so disturbing from the consumer end. But what you do in this piece is show what it was like, uh, what it was like, as I say, backstage. Tell us something of that. I mean, what? How did that thinking go with the saner members of the of the Trump circle and the experts? You know, our understanding is that the members of the White House task force they were somewhat in despair over the fact that there was not a nationalized testing plan, which was, they knew, key to flattening the curve. So, you know, one of them told uh, members of the Rockefeller Foundation that the administration is not doing anything on testing. That testing is an afterthought. You know, it's just, it's just not happening. And then in the States, the way that got translated was this sort of Darwinian struggle for manpower and material and logistics support and funding so that the the Phoenix mayor finds herself in this horrible catch-22. She's told in April she can't have FEMA support because her case count is too low. Why is her case count too low? Because she can't get enough tests done, right? And so, Mm -hmm. you know, the problem with this logic is it just blows up the whole idea of preparedness mm-hmm. is you prepare in advance and you don't wait until you're in a state of complete catastrophe before you get support. But in fact, that is exactly what happened in Phoenix. You know, there were people waiting for 13 hours online in cars, running out of gas, struggling to breathe, trying to get tested, the tests vanishing, as one expert said to me, and this didn't make it into the piece, but it's like America invented the supply chain from mm. Ford Motor Company to Amazon.com. We are the supply chain and logistics experts of the world, and we can't do this. And it's not rocket science. It's as though the administration just wanted to squander one more American asset, one more giant American asset, you know, just kick another leg out from under the table. And the consequences were so swift, you know, with, with, um, with the impeachment and the Mueller investigation, it's been difficult to sometimes difficult to explain the consequences because they seem so abstract of violating rule of law or campaign finance regulations or, um, or getting foreign aid. But in this case, and you have this wonderful Margaret Bordeaux quoted from the Harvard Medical School program, she does public policy, but she just has this very graphic way of saying, you know, we're going to lose visibility on the virus and then have it rampage through the country, which seems like what happened at the federal level. Yeah. 
So talk about the Rockefeller Foundation, because I wonder if when you ran into this, if you started doing this part that you thought, well, at least I'll be able to have not a totally crushing, desperate ending to the story, <laughs> because because the Rockefeller Foundation sits in that place that's you know closer to government than to private enterprise and is something that America has been able to lean on in a way that turning to Morgan Stanley or the tech companies via Jared Kushner is is seeming to be an increasingly bad idea. It once loomed large as a Davos-style solution to our problems. But now here we are back to the Rockefeller Foundation. So tell us how that happened and how our our (laughs) dubious possible superheroes, or at least, you know, sane, normal people um, came came to the half-rescue. Well, so at the same time that I'm trying to excavate, you know, the invoice and the testing plan, um, a publicist, a publicist from the Rockefeller Foundation had contacted me and said, you know, they're trying to stand up this really interesting testing plan and get to 30 million tests a week. Like their estimates are, Mm -hmm. that's what the U.S. needs to be doing. That's scale. And at the point that I think I got involved in this story, it was like at 1 million tests a week, something like that. Mm -hmm. So I was sort of interested in this seemingly impossible quest. But the Rockefeller Foundation is run by a really charismatic and inspiring guy named Rajiv Shah. He's a 47-year-old doctor. He essentially ran the Ebola response and the response to the Haiti earthquake for USAID, uh, a development agency within the U.S. government. And um, he just, so he gave me time. You know, we got on the phone and he explained that, um, you know, he had been looking at this federal response and all the things that should have been happening were not happening. So he just felt like, how is the U.S. going to reopen without this? And decided that where the Rockefeller Foundation could make a difference was in a massive scale-up of testing. And so he began to build connection with various governors, cities, tribal nations, and started building out this coalition to uh, ramp up testing. So essentially, the Rockefeller Foundation is trying to do what the federal government should have done and didn't. But how can the Rockefeller Foundation, however powerful and however kind of in concert with the Gates Foundation and and uh, and the WHO, whatever's remaining of our relationship with them, how can they do the distribution that requires, um, as you point out, requires this extraordinarily complicated coordination plan without the federal government or without Trump? Well, I mean, that is the question. And that was essentially what was being discussed. They let me sit in on some of their planning and logistics sessions. Um, and that's the question. Yeah. How can they do it? You know, it's like the federal government is the entity capable of scaling up to this size and mm-hmm. they're not doing it. So what are you going to do? Um, what's interesting is, is that just, I think, two days ago, so after this, my story ran, Um, I think partially as a response to my story, I understand, there were six states that signed an interstate compact on diagnostic testing with the Rockefeller Foundation. 
So they're going to do a, you know, a mini kind of organized systemic testing plan. So that means they're going to pool tests, pool lab capacity, and organize. And there may be more of those in the works. So if you can begin to organize chunks of the country into these compacts, Right, which we saw a little bit. We saw during, at least I remember it as in April, right? That like suddenly the map was, the map of the United States of America looked completely changed with all different colors and names for different packs and Mm -hmm. uh, coalitions and, um, you know, incredibly disturbing for people who to like to think that the we're in a united states but now uh now we're not and this this six those so this six state pact but how do they still solve the problem of the post office and the highways and and right now 32 states are banned from sending people into the city of new york uh, you know i don't know how they enforce that but how in the world even do you have the rockefeller states of america or whatever the six are going to be called <laughs> You know, it's incredibly complex, incredibly complex. I mean, the the number of issues that have to be resolved, you know, and when I sat in on those phone calls, I mean, they're discussing stuff like public school systems versus private schools and schools that can't even afford to have a nurse. And what happens, what happens to those communities? And what about people who you know, are essential workers who have to quarantine, who don't have support. I mean, the countries that have figured this out are giving people in quarantine supportive isolation. They're bringing food, you know, they're making it possible for people who are infected or potentially infected to sit out. And we have no system. There is no system. We just have chaos. Right. So Rajiv Shah, who has worked in Haiti and other places, has probably confronted just about every obstacle to dealing with a pandemic, except maybe a leader who doesn't want to address a pandemic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, maybe it, I keep thinking that sometime the UN should get involved in our, you know, and, and people, again, people on Twitter who think that Jared Kushner here or his group may be responsible for some kind of, sh- you know, soft, I don't know, I won't go so far as to say some, some negligence that caused deaths of people in certain states that, that, I, that th- that's I think a they Hague were, issue, you know, that's I, a, they, yeah. they were calling it, they were calling it democide. Democide. Oh, God. All right. We're to the point where there's democide in the United States. But it sounds like you have some hope about the six state plan and that there may be uh, plant states that can can um, establish other plans with the with the Rockefeller Foundation and related related groups, at least for testing, at least as far as testing goes. Right. You know, there are these billion dollar and multi-million dollar donations to the cause. I know Jack Dorsey of Twitter gave a billion dollars. I wonder I don't know quite where all that's ended up, but it seems like the Rockefeller Foundation right now is our most promising hope. I mean, you know, it is hopeful that they are competent, experienced people who are doing the right thing and are being recognized by state governments as doing the right thing. So all of that is promising. But I do think that without a coordinated federal response 
And now we have school reopenings. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're headed into a flu season where how are you going to distinguish between who has the flu and who has COVID-19? And the only way to do that is through testing. This, to me, where I sit, it's not looking very promising for the fall. The month on all of our minds, certainly at Trumpcast, but I think everyone's mind is January when there's a possibility of some vaccines and better yet, a possibility of other more different leadership. <laughs> you know, even if that's unspoken by Rajit Shah and his team, I think, you know, the best we can hope for is someone else. <laughs> Catherine Eben is a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. Her recent article is called How Jared Kushner's Secret Testing Plan Went Poof into Thin Air. Thanks so much for being here, Catherine. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun talking to you. That's it for today's show. What did you think? Give us your five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. And then come to us on Twitter. Gather round. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And while you're navigating the internet wilderness, why not tuck into our information bastion and join Slate Plus? Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and sign up. All these new services, Sketcher and whatever, those are $35 for what, a day? Well, we're $35 for the first year. And best of all, when you sign up for Slate Plus, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.